boy, do I hope you bring the magic this week. <laughs> I am fresh out of magic. <laughs> no, no. That's what I've got on my shopping list. Magic. From, oh, you, geez. from you. You're coming up short. Take a rain check. All right. We're going to do something really unconventional uh, for... What, what is this? This is season two, episode number five of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Okay. Do you know what that is? Um, you don't. Gonna, we're going to do it in reverse. <laughs> sort of. We're going to do it live. Bye, everyone. Do it live. Uh, we are going to start with a sponsorship. Never done that before, but I've got a fun reason to. Okay. Okay. So back in, uh, I'll tell you the exact date. Back in October, 27th of October, uh, I have no idea how this happened, but I sent an email to Casper. Do you know who Casper is? Uh, yes, due to all the NPR commercials for the Casper mattresses. Right, so somehow Casper has is sponsoring this show. And oh, I'm so excited about this. Yeah, I know. This is the best news I've gotten in weeks. This is this is a solid way to start. So I was getting ready to, to start recording, and I'm going over our list of sponsors, and number one on the list is Casper. I'm like, wow. I, uh, they are really blanketing the world if they've reached the Ruby on Rails podcast. Um, it, but it reminded me that back in October, I sent them an email about sponsoring the show. Would you like to hear it? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Now, keep in mind, I have sent a grand total of mm, somewhere between one and two emails about sponsoring the show ever. This is one of the two. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sean, and I host the Ruby on Rails podcast on 5x5. I heard about Casper on the talk show with John Gruber and the Accidental Tech, Cop, uh, tech Podcast. I think my audience, about 4,500 weekly listeners, so we're up, we're up 20-something percent since then. But we'll get back to those stats. Would enjoy hearing more about Casper, and here's where it gets fun. I'd like to record an episode that had some fun with the review data on your website by teaching the audience how to build a simple web scraping application, which I don't think we've talked about before, but I love building web scrapers. Uh, the idea came from a conversation with my wife, it was that morning, where we were guessing what percentage of people slept with their dogs. Now, you know, you've, you've had various meals with us. You can imagine this conversation and how it would have started. So we, we were talking. Yeah. So what did I do? I wrote a little web scraper to scrape the Casper website because they have on their reviews what type of sleeping arrangement you use your Casper with. Like, is it with a partner? Is it with a dog? Is it with a cat? Is it with both? You know, they've got like a, a little checklist of things, you know, things you're sleeping with. Uh, so anyways, I, I wrote this simple script to scrape all of the review data so that I could figure out what percentage of people slept with their dog from Casper reviews. And I emailed it to him with the link here and said, anyways, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, get in touch by email. Uh, and the next thing I heard was, you know, what, nine months, eight months later, uh, it's suddenly in the queue for sponsorship, which I think had absolutely nothing to do with that email <laughs> at all. But uh, anyhow, so let's get to the percentage of people that sleep with a pet. I tweeted it, or I, I sent it to you. It's 54% of people sleep with their pet. Does that seem like a high number or a low number to you? It does. It seems high to me. It's high. Yeah. I mean, do you think that 54% of parents co-sleep with their infant? No. Really? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so either, but I would, I would I'm, I'm not sure that 54% of people would 
partners sleep with their partners. You know, it's interesting. You say- <laughs> I feel like 54% is a very high number. I agree. Sleeping with anything. <laughs> well, interestingly, so I was looking at the little scraper as I was dialing you, and one of the things that was on my, like one of the fields I extracted from the reviews was whether or not you slept with a partner, which is weird because I didn't include it in that tweet. I must, I must have run out of characters. But yeah, I agree. 50, <laughs> 54% is a lot. So 54% of people, according to Casper reviews, sleep with pet. 61 out of 156. So 39% of all people that sleep on Casper beds sleep with a dog in the bed. Uh, 22% sleep with a cat. But my favorite stat of all is 6% of people that sleep on a Casper mattress sleep with both a dog and a cat in bed. Which seems ridiculous. <laughs> Like, I don't you have to wonder if it's the crazy people buying Casper mattresses that have all these animals, pets, and children, and partners, or if, you know, is it self-selection? Does the Casper mattress, you know, give itself to people who need to put multiple types of, you know, Species. mammals on... <laughs> A single mattress. Well, let's read. We're going to read the little ad here and figure out if it's self-selection. So, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry is inherently focused, forced consumers inherently. I should really read the, the copy before I start reading it. So, inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. But there, Casper revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you, the consumer, and Fido, your pet. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new hybrid mattress that combines cats and dogs, premium latex foam, and memory foam. They've combined two technologies, latex foam and, right, and memory foam, just the right sink and just the right bounce. That's what they say. Come together for better nights and brighter days. So it's 500 bucks for a twin size mattress and 950 for a king size mattress and kind of price points in between those two ends. If you, you can imagine it, uh, it's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. You can try it out risk-free and return it. Uh, 100 days, you can sleep on it. If you don't like it, they'll take it back. Uh, so, uh, they offer free delivery and returns within that 100-day period. It's that simple. Statistically, lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right bed for you, which I totally believe, by the way. Oh, so, yeah. And, you know, they've got that, like, satin finish on the, the nice mattresses. And it, I feel like you can you can learn a lot by watching someone evaluate a mattress in a mattress store. Because if you're one of those people that lays down and rubs your hand on the like the sateen finish of the premium mattress, <laughs> like what else could you do in the next three minutes that would tell you more, tell me more about you than that? Not a lot of things. <laughs> I don't think. Oh man. Okay. By the way, they're made in America. So what do you do now? You go and get your fifty bucks off of your Casper mattress. By visiting, let's see, casper.com slash ruby on rails, casper.com slash ruby on rails, uh, and use the offer code ruby on rails, uh, terms and conditions apply and underline. I wonder what those are. 
Anyhow, you should look, see what the terms and conditions are, but you get 50 bucks off of a great mattress shipped to your house for free, 100 days, no risk. You can send it back. I want to thank Casper for supporting 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast, and maybe, maybe I should post this little scraper. What do you think? Is that even um, yeah. somewhat interesting? I have zero yeah. recollection of how I even wrote it. None. I've been reading the reviews, the newest reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I invite you to go to Casper's website just to read some reviews. <laughs> Are they like Amazon review-ish reviews? Uh, there are some really good reviews. <laughs> now, do you mean like really good as in like very positive they love their Casper mattress or, or funny? Yeah, or- I mean a lot of people love their Casper mattress for sure. Um uh, the website mildly mocks you if you sleep alone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it uses that exact phrase, sleeps alone. <laughs> it makes sense. This, yeah. this user sleeps forever alone. I will post this. This is very, it's very, uh, uh, very simple to read if you're new to web scraping and have an interest in compiling statistics about the sleeping habits of people and their pets. It's your... Uh, Does your script uh, allow for pigs? Because uh, that is one of the animal options in these reviews. I think that they've expanded their website since my original <laughs> script. Because I'm looking at it, there are only there. I use a CSS selector to see if there's a dog. Because they used a little image where they had like a yeah, col- yeah yeah yeah. So they had dog and cat that I saw, but maybe they've added other animals. I saw a piggy. <laughs> Who sees a piggy? <laughs> All right. So awesome. that's fun. Starting with a fun ad. I like it. And and I feel like this is a milestone to have Casper to uh, to sponsor the show. So um, thank it's you. my favorite uh, advertisement from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR <laughs> is the spring and bounce. That phrase, spring and bounce. Right. I'll never forget a Casper mattress because it has the perfect combination of spring and bounce. Yep. Yep. Anyway. And and finally, you know, there's uh, I I can't imagine what exactly was going through my household the morning that I wrote this little scraper to talk with my wife about sleeping habits of people and their pets, but I'm glad that it got some use right now. <laughs> Honey, you don't understand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to show you. I'm going to out-nerd you. I'm yeah, going to yeah. nerd-snipe you with this, with this script. Yeah, yeah, look at me. Look at me uh, romancing my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing says the magic is still there, like proving your wife wrong with a CSS script. <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm Sean, that's Kyle. I feel like we should do hey. introductions every day. Every yeah, I, every episode. I, I would love it. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's get into our topics. So I had a little bit of uh, follow-up from the last episode as, as you uh, figure out what uh, topic you're going to offer <laughs> for today's show. <laughs> uh, okay. I had some fancy hands follow up. Uh, so let's get into it. So last time I talked about how I was using fancy hands, the, uh, the service that's like outsourced labor, the, the way usually people know it is that it's like a, like a on demand assistant to do life concierge type work for you. You know, like, like look up options to buy things or make, make appointments or whatever. Um, but they also have an API that sort of exposes their the underlying assistant labor force, the fancy hand assistant labor force to applications where you can, you know, request that that labor force do all sorts of things and, uh, and, and pay in relatively flexible ways and then integrate the outcome of those, um, 
calls into your into your application. So last episode, I think that I was, I don't remember exactly, but I think I was like in the middle of the integration at that point. Do you remember? Yeah, I think you were kind of getting going and working on the script and making some changes to that and everything. Okay, yeah. So since then, I wrote, you know, I was up to, to version maybe number nine of a, a script that the Fancy Hands assistants would use to call. So the way that, so the Fancy Hands API has got like a number of, options. So one of them is that you can script outbound calls. So the way that it works, and now I've been on the receiving end of many of these calls. So I kind of have a good idea of what the whole process is like. Anyways, the outbound script, what it does is when you fire up the request, when a fancy hand assistant accepts it, it places that call outbound to the number that's on the call. And then the assistant waits on like a screen for the call to connect. And when it connects, then it patches them in and then get like sort of steers them through the call with a little bit of like a, a choose your own adventure kind of prompting. And then on the prompting, you can either have them just say things or collect information in various forms, all the, all the ways you could imagine. So I thought at first that this is the way to do it, right? I would like script the call and I would make it really good and easy to read and then collect the structured data and then have that structured data spit back at my application. And then I would take that and parse it into the actual models, um, which turned out to be like a marginally good idea, I'd say, because for a couple reasons, one, I'm apparently less than great at writing scripts for call centers. It took me, I mean, it took me like a dozen before it was even passable because I'd be on the receiving end and you, that's right. You were on one too. And, oh, uh, yeah. oh, that was after the show, wasn't it? It was. Oh yes. I said, please, please call me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, careful what you wish for. So y- you caught one, I, I bet you were in like the fourth or fifth revision of the script. So what was it like to be on the receiving end at that point? Um, it was a little, it was a lot of, uh, <laughs> faux, uh, Hi, I would like to talk to you about your. And then the script would continue on and go, okay, excellent. I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Nice and genuine copywriting. (laughs) Yeah, it was. uh, I mean, I've never seen anything more genuine. Right. All right. Cool. I mean, it was still cool to talk to an actual human being. Like, since Twilio happened and everything, where, like, making a phone call isn't that cool anymore, you know? From, like, more programmatically, but having an actual human to interact with is pretty neat. Right. So, great irony of this conversation is right when we started to talk about um, them calling you, your audio got a little bit whacked, <laughs> which I feel like is like an omen. <laughs> yeah. That'll be a great episode. There you go. You're back. So, um,. Yeah, so so here's what I did. So I went at that point. I think the script was still a little bit um, chatty, so I kept editing it down until I reached a rule, which is that no sentence that is said can be longer than eight words. I think, like, I mean, they were short, and no word could be more than say two syllables, maybe one three syllable word every like fourth sentence, but basically one and two syllable words that were eight words long. And the reason wasn't so much that. Um, you know, the assistants couldn't read effectively a script. It was more that it just the likelihood that one of those words was going to trip them up on one of the screens skyrockets as you increase the number of words. So you just had to keep, I had to like keep it super simple. So anyways, I, I get through it. I get to a, a version that's pretty good, but then I noticed that it really depends on which assistants calling 
like what output you're going to get. Some of them were quite good at the structured data. Some of them were a little bit less good at the structured data. So uh, my second take at it was actually to kind of go with the flow. And I said, you know what? These assistants are just like people sitting in their home office trying to work. So instead of trying to script them through, now I'm just providing a form. So I'm using a different service of Fancy Hands now, which is called the custom request. And what I was using before was called the outbound call. So the custom request is I just like like list out the data that I want at the end and then provide like a huge, not huge, but four paragraph, say, um, preamble that says, here's what I'm trying to do and here's why and here's why it matters and here is what you can expect when you call people and use whatever process works. And by the way, I need this form at the end. And I'm using that instead, figuring that like, hey, these are like, might, might as well go with what is uh, what people are really strong at, which is sort of navigating the human-y parts of communication and uh, try not to script it as hard as I was a la they were, you know, robots in the Twilio machine. So that's where I am. That's where I am. I'm a, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, like I said, I think it was, you know, knowing what you're working on, it was a lot of fun to kind of like be a part of it temporarily and sort of see how, you know, like when you're building an interface on a website or in an API, like you're definitely, you have a very concrete, you know, uh, structure in which people can interact with it and you can kind of futz around and fuzz it and whatever. But I mean, humans, you know, without any sort of translation layer, asked a question can honestly and earnestly answer it probably way more ways than you're willing to or able to consider <laughs> right uh you know when it's just natural language um which is not something that i think most of us have to deal with on a day-to-day is you know natural language processing and this is even just you know two humans talking to each other uh even though there's a script in between to kind of interpret how that other human should act yeah, so I decided in the end I was, I think the key to to uh, integrating with Fancy Hands for me on this application is is to not worry so much about the efficiency of taking the data that they gather and converting it into the structured data and actions that the application needs, but rather seeing it as, okay, I need, like, it's actually quite easy once you have the, the sort of human interpreted input from these conversations to create the, the profiles that we're looking to create in this application. So like let the people kind of feel their way towards that information and find the way to get it. Cause there's really not one way that's going to make it work and do it for like $2 and 50 cents per profile, which is like nothing. Um, you know, especially considering, uh, the, the sort of underlying context. So anyways, so far, a uh, super interesting experience. I'll have way more to say. And I think a couple things to post like blog posts. And I think I'm going to open source something related to this maybe in like a week or two. Uh, so we'll be coming back to this, but I highly encourage people to start thinking about, uh, if they have any sort of part of their application where a little on demand, relatively inexpensive human labor could, uh, especially human labor that can make phone calls and, and be pretty good on the phone. Um, if you've got that going, then stay tuned. Cause I think it's a, it's an interesting thing for you to get smart about. All right. I'm looking at my follow-up list to see if there's anything else from last week to cover. Oh, I got a pretty good amount of feedback on API first training, which I'm hosting in September. 
So thanks to the many people that said something to me about that. Uh, I, uh, I'm teaming up with another one of our sponsors to promote it over the next month and, uh, should be releasing some fun, fun information between now and then. So anyways, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the nice thoughts on API first training. If you want to check it out, go to API first dot training. And again, more to come next week on that. Awesome. Yeah. All right, sir. So that's all I've got for follow-up from last week. Uh, the ball's in your court. Give me a topic. Or, th- or throw out a topic so, for this week. So the past uh, the past week I have been um, working on some brand new projects and, you know... GitHub projects also- or, or Kyle projects? GitHub projects. Kyle hasn't had a lot of time for projects as of late. <laughs> Diaper rash. Um, is Kyle's project. Yeah, yeah. Kyle's project is my son is sick now, and so he is my project. Right. Uh, we were in Maine from Thursday, starting on Thursday, and so I was away, not coding very purposefully, and so to be a good podcast co-host, I knew I would have to bring some sort of topic to the table, and so as any good, excellent podcast co-host would do is i immediately went to twitter i started searching twitter right and i started to type in the phrase ruby on rails into twitter to see sort of what is going on uh nothing the answer is absolutely nothing come on it's all job postings can you believe that that's awful no no no. it's kind of funny actually so um you know i, I kind of was scrolling a lot through you know and like and, and, and so I've kind of gotten mildly enamored by these job postings, right? Because they all uh, they all say roughly the same thing, you know, generally speaking, about how much experience you need, and and so some of them just like straight up put the dollar amount in the in the posting, which I find kind of interesting for Ruby on Rails, because like you know, there's been some talk about like how we've reached the top of the you know demand, uh, the market demand for Ruby on Rails and everything like that. And so the sad thing to me, and the reason I bring this up is like, it's I'm I'm sort of wondering now if we're like about to hit that episode where we jump the shark. Now, is <laughs> like, this programmers or Rails programmers? Rails programmers, mm. you know, um, it, you know, we're pumping out a ton of. We'll just call them junior developers, just not because I don't think that they are, but I, I kind of don't like that term at all. But you know, people that are going through a boot camp or some sort of like you know specialized high velocity training system, um, and so like a ton of new people coming into the market every you know three months, let's just say. Um, but like every single one of these listings that I'm scrolling through has the word senior in it. Like everyone, like no, I'm not. I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm not. And then you click in, and like I think like senior means months. had a job before, basically, right? You think that's the difference? Yeah, I really do. And I'm not even being snarky about it. I think that that's code for this is not your first professional programming job. Yeah, but what's the harm in that? What like, like what? I like I really I yeah I really have like I'm really curious that like for the majority of these jobs right. I highly doubt that, like, they're dealing with, uh, you know, some scale or, you know, some 
problem set or whatever that would truly need someone who's been writing code for 15 years and you know has been doing ruby since ruby or, or sorry rails since like rails one or whatever you know well i mean like, okay I so two... i'm gonna throw out some i'm gonna throw out a couple theories on why you see this so anyone that's posting or not anyone the majority of people that are posting those ads on twitter are recruiters of one form or another whether it's you know in-house but most of them would be third-party recruiters i think and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I bet that that's the case. And I think that if you're a recruiter, I bet that there is some anxiety regarding presenting a candidate that's never done the job to someone that's hiring. Like, I, 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 like whether or not that's sensible or not, and I agree with you, there's, there's plenty of times where it would be perfectly sensible to hire someone new and plenty of times there wouldn't be. But I think that, that almost regardless, if you're a recruiter, the idea of saying, Hey, here's someone that's never programmed that you could hire. I bet it feels off and maybe is like frowned upon, so to speak, either by clients or certainly by the firms. Do you think that's the case? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are people that come out of these boot camps that probably have better foundations and better, more interesting, you know, life experiences that you know would be more highly applicable to most startups and companies you know what i mean like there's a really interesting article i forget where it was that was talking about basically how like your liberal arts degree is what will set you apart in in being hired you know like the main premise being like you're not you don't have the same exact experience the same background as everyone you're sitting around um you know which i i thoroughly agree with but you know it's kind of funny watching this market now i mean i've been at github for two and a half years and i have not been looking for jobs and so you know every once in a while i'll have someone email me that's like you know at a boot camp or someone that's sort of wanting to like make a shift in the type of company that they're working for maybe they've always worked at big co um they want to go to startups or vice versa you know and just like flipping through these listings you're just like what 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 is what is what is happening (laughs) I think it's been this way for a decent amount of time. I don't think this is super... uh, A couple years, I think. Well, I'm not talking about, like, the ninja rock star thing. Like, I think we've surpassed that. Maybe not. I mean, I still see the listing, but that's, like, sure, like, that's kind of silly to talk about, I I feel like, at this point. I feel like it's relatively well accepted that, you know, that's not what we're going for here. But, like, at the same time, like, you know, while I'm looking at these listings like over and over it's just so interesting to just click into these and read what these people want i mean like this this one company wants seven plus years of experience oh come on in, ra- their- in rails yes <laughs> oh, i'm, I'm yes. guessing those 47 guys have jobs that they like yeah but you know i'm pretty sure these people would love them to work at below market rates <laughs> yeah right I don't know. I just I like I I don't understand why the job like why job hunting needs to be so kind of you know hoop 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 jumpy, but especially it seems like for rails engineers. Like I feel like if you're an engineer in one of the newer languages that are sort of kind of coming into the limelight right now, um I feel like you're in a much better shape than trying to like fight the masses with this crazy uh you know 12 years of rails experience for requests and whatnot, you know? Um, so I say we make this the, the recruiting sh- or the, like the recruiting and hiring show. We're going to make an audible right now. Do you agree with this plan? Uh, like, sure. Yeah. Cause there's a million good topics on this that I think we can dive into. 
But I think that we should make a rule, and you just gave me the idea, which is let's dive into the the topics that are particularly thorny. In other words, like like whether calling someone a ninja is douchey or not, that's obvious. We don't have to talk about that. But there are a bunch of topics sure. where people are weird or conflicted, or I think there are some where the conventional wisdom has swung so hard in one direction that I may take the other side on it. Um, so in other words... I will fight you, sir. <laughs> I am the conventional wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's 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 uh let's dive in to the the somewhat thorny wor- world of opinions about hiring. Shall we? Do it. Okay. Uh I'm going to read our second sponsor so that you can brainstorm a list of topics. And then while you are listing yours, I will write mine down and then we will uh uh, prepare the minefield of topics that hopefully we will not rain a hurricane right now. Yeah. We will not, uh, we will not blow our, our foot off. Okay. This will be, this will be good. Let me get to our second sponsor for today. And that is digital ocean. Digital ocean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. You probably remember from last time you can create a cloud server in 55 seconds for as little as five bucks a month. DigitalOcean is built for developers and is used by over 400,000 of them, including me and Kyle on some things. Um, not everything. I need to put uh, I need to put something bigger on DigitalOcean, but I've had pretty good success uh, with the, the smaller things that I've put on there so far. It's highly scalable to meet the demands of a rapidly growing application or business. For example, you can even resize your existing droplets to meet your needs as you grow. You've got your choice of uh, OS and one-click installs for lots of apps like Ruby on Rails or Django or Drupal, a whole big list. You can see it on their website. Uh, All their servers are built on hex-core machines with dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage. Your servers can have 20 CPUs, 64 gigabytes of RAM, uh, 640 gigabytes of SSD hard drive space, uh, whatever you need, really, to to scale up your apps uh, from the beginning to uh, a very successful place. You can deploy your servers into regions all over the, the world. Manage uh, the DNS uh, easily uh, on their, uh, their admin panel and uh, get auto backups and snapshots, uh, which allow you to easily clone and deploy new servers. Again, it only takes 55 seconds to try them out, so why don't you? Go over to digitalocean.com slash, nope, just that, digitalocean.com. Use the, the code uh, RubyPodcast, and when you do, you'll get 10 bucks credit on your new account. 10 bucks. that's two months of their, their uh, base plan. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting the Ruby on Rails podcast. How furious was the uh, brainstorming? Um, you know, I have a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I yeah, list them slowly while I write mine down. Well, no, I mean, I kind of want to dive into some of this stuff because I feel like it's gonna, you know, I, like this is one of those things where a snowball rolling downhill, you know, situation. Okay, then, then pick the most interesting from your list, and then I'll pick the most interesting from mine. One of my biggest pet peeves about our hiring community is how much people complain about getting contacted by recruiters. Oh, thank you. Uh, you hit the ball out of the park with this one. 
boom. <laughs> so uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I um, it, like it, in what other in what other field or or in what other era are you like? I'm paid. I'm paid well. I mean, and if you're not paid well, you should talk to your manager or company. But presumably, you're paid well. And there's these people that are coming out of the woodwork. And honestly, some of them are bad approaches, right? They're they're contacting a volume of people, but they're basically like, "Hey, we would also like to pay you money, and we'll probably pay you more money. So, like, please come work over at our company." And you're like. <laughs> You're talking to someone like, hey, like I had, I got five emails from recruiters today. How they want me to go work at these companies, both big and small. It's like no, that, that happens to no other profession. Let me like tw- my wife. Let me does tweet not shame get, you. Like five emails, you know, where that a, a day they're like, hey, I see you're doing good work over at this company. Why don't you come work for us? Like that doesn't happen. That is such a luxury for our field. And I don't get me wrong. Like I said, a lot of these emails or tweets are like way off the mark or bad form you know uh you know field merges or whatever but at the same time like it is such one a douchey humble brag to be like (laughs) i got 10 of those emails (laughs) it's just ridiculous you know and i'm I'm bathing i'm bathing in recruiting emails over here yeah yeah i could quit 10 jobs this week and still get (laughs) one more like what does that accomplish you know because I do think there is a great place for recruiters. I, I mean, when sure. I was on that side of the fence, like good recruiters are amazing, you know. But at the same time, like having gotten emails, you know, it, I've I've definitely tempered my reaction from the early days to now to be like, oh, like you know, no, I'm good. I'm happy where I'm at. But thank you very much. Like I respond to every recruiter email I get. Yeah, of um, course. Well, because you're because I mean, like I'm a human being. Because <laughs> you're an adult human. Okay, so I, I agree with your visceral reaction. I have the exact same opinion. I mean, word for word. So let's jump past that since we share that and talk about why. Why do people? Because it's not a few people. I mean, this isn't like a vocal minority. It is a huge portion of the community chirps about recruiters. Um, it's right. it's it, it's like. It's as common as people complaining about NPM. I mean, it's that common. Like, you hear it. I, I see it every day on Twitter multiple day, uh, multiple times. So why do you think? Like, what's, what's going on with that? Because it doesn't make much sense, and I totally agree with you. It's it's best case a humble brag and worst case, like, revealing your, like, very deeply held insecurities. Oh, well, I think it's that. <laughs> you think that's think that's what's going on? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we've talked about this off podcast, but I mean, I definitely think it's like that little tip of the iceberg of, you know, imposter syndrome, where it's like, oh, well, obviously I'm good because all these people want me right now. You know what I mean? I really think that it's like primarily that. I mean, if I'm, if granted, I'm not internet famous, I am not, you know, employee number three at a major company or startup or anything like that. I, I don't know if there is some point where the volume is just insane and like, you know, you are getting up, you know, so many contacts that are just unwarranted. But I imagine that th- those people are so few and far between. If you're just, you know, a normal, you know, engineer and you're getting all of these, you know, emails by means of, you know, several or a dozen, I don't know. I just don't see any reason why you can't just say thank you, but no thank you. Good luck in your search, Kyle. And, and I don't you know? even buy the internet famous bit. I mean, I think if you were to put us on the relative spectrum, I mean, you work at GitHub, uh, 
relatively well-known. You know, I've had this show for a while. I've had very interesting jobs, relatively well-known. And I mean, it's not that, it's not that much to deal with. I don't buy it. I don't buy that. There's some person that's getting like flooded every day. They're like, Oh my God, I'd get work done if it wasn't for this stack of recruiter emails. I have to read. I just, oh, I want to read the tweet. I want to Google for that tweet right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's there. I, I'm so, I'm so busy right now. Clicking archive on all my emails. <laughs> it's rough. Thank goodness for Google inbox. What would I do without it? Exactly. Yeah, I think let us let us take a moment then to to ask anyone that's listening, it, whether you are experienced and have been in the community a long time, uh, well known, not well known, or new and are looking to the community for the behaviors that mean you've arrived. And really, I think it's this group I want to talk to most because there's the uh, highest possibility we could get through. Don't do that. Like, there's no way to tweet about or or you know complain about recruiters and not look silly. Well, I think I don't, I think I can say that unequivocally. Yep. All right. So I mean, I think that's the biggest, I think that's my biggest one. Um, I think the other thing that is interesting to me and I counsel a fair number of people in my life about this, both in rails and not in rails is, um, People never ask for enough money. Ever. Maybe you do, because I've, I've had a lot of conversations with you about this. But, like, I feel like in general, right, you go do your interview, and, and they're like, you know, some of these have these crazy numbers, some of them don't. You do your interview, and they're like, you know what? We'd love to hire you, and we're going to pay you, you know, $100 a year. And I feel like there's way too many people who have this mental quandary where they're like, I want more money, but I I couldn't possibly ask for more money. $100 a year is the market rate or it's above the market rate or it's enough for me to be happy or whatever. You know what I mean? And if I ask for more money, they're going to retract my offer. Well, I'm, I think... others meets no end that, that companies have that hold over people because I don't think it exists. Well, I, 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 I don't think I, bargaining I, is... I think that the issue is that bargaining is not free for some people. So in other words, the cost of it. And let's skip past the actual, like, maybe literal dollars and cents cost of bargaining, which I think is interesting to come back to. But, like, from a psychological standpoint, I think bargaining takes a toll to different degrees on different people. And um, I would not discount that. And there's no real option for those people. Like in many other parts of your life, you can outsource that. And maybe you could say you could do that to a recruiter, I guess. Although I, I I don't know. Cause the the job of the recruiter is to get you in the, in the job. I mean, they're not really advocating, they're not really advocating for you or against you. I mean, they're, they're advocating to get the deal done quickly. That's what they care about most. But I think, you know, in my conversations with people, I think that the, the dominant feeling about negotiating about anything, let alone about your own salary with people you're going to then have to work with, say, for, on average for two to three years, is just dread, right? Like people hate the idea of having to sort of put their foot down and what if they're wrong and, you know, does that set the relationship off on the right foot, etc. And I get that. Like, I don't think that's nothing. Like others, I agree with you that people leave money on the table, but I think I understand why, and that's because for most people, the the, the cost uh, to them of enduring that negotiation is difficult to bear. I mean, do you think that's the case? 
I mean, I think that I am speaking from my, you know, position of, you know, privilege for lack of a, you know, better description. I mean, I'm a dude, I'm a, I'm a white dude living in New England. And I feel like, you know, I'm able to say this through my experience, but I don't think that uh, from different uh, life experiences or backgrounds or women or minorities or whatever, which are, you know, statistically, you're less likely to get paid the same rate. I think that there's a whole different ballgame there uh, where, you know, companies are either implicitly or explicitly, you know, subjecting you to get less money. Um because of the situation and I've seen that to be true for sure um, but my my wonder is it what like if if someone came, if 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 uh, you know if you came to me and said you know like I, I don't want to negotiate or I, I'm not sure I can or whatever I don't know what systemic you know possibility there is for you to get paid the salary you want or the salary you deserve or whatever you know I mean, if I'm able to go in and they offer me a certain number of money and I go, well, I really want or need more money than that, and they give it to me, I don't know how you go about fixing that for um, people who either don't want to negotiate because we don't really have agents, right? Um, yeah, we don't have collective, kind of hole. and we don't have collective bargainings, you know, and, and whether or not either yeah. of those are great or not, um, I think that they have pluses and minuses, but it does sure. really put uh, those that... Uh, either feel like they can take risks in negotiation or actually can take risks, you know, and I think to your point, you know, some people in more privileged positions just have a larger buffer, you know, through which they can, or on which they can count on when they negotiate so they can take bigger risks or have been practiced at um, not worrying about alternatives if something doesn't work because they believe that there's always something around the corner for them. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't have either that ability or, you know, or aren't in a position to take advantage of, 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 uh, of being a bit more bold, you know, the, the companies are going to take advantage of you. And and, I, and given what you said that there isn't, you know, you, you, there really aren't third parties that negotiate on your behalf, whether collectively or individually, you know, it, it kind of, the, the world favors the bold. I think that's the fact. And I think your point's right that the, the, you know. It favors the bold is probably code for favors the privileged and, and maybe maybe both yeah, yeah. maybe both because I yeah. think that if you weren't privileged and bold I think on average things would work out and the question is is if you weren't privileged could you be bold do you have the balance sheet so to speak to fall back on uh, the percentage of the time right. that being bold doesn't work yeah yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic, and I think that it, it's one we could go into more. I mean, there's the question not only of how you negotiate, but you know, uh, what type of job are you looking for? I mean, if you're looking to be one, you know a person on a big team of of artisanal engineers, right? I mean, you're not going to make as much money as you could if you were on a much smaller team with crappy work to do. That's life, right? Plumbers make more money than than uh, uh, football coaches. Right, because lots of people want to be football coaches, and not many people want to be plumbers, and um, so it goes with programming. And I think that that's an often not really discussed topic too. Well, let's transition into. That. Oh man, no, yeah, let's do that because I I talk about that all the time when I go to like when I do talks to college students or uh, or uh, you know like these boot camps. Right, I talk about all the time how I'm like uh, how I'm convinced we are, you know 
we are just a trade, you know? <laughs> and for some reason right now we have this awesome renaissance where, like, there's just such a need for software or whatever. But as as our, or our you know, generation or whatever, our cohort of developers continues on and software will always be needed, but as that skill set hopefully, hopefully gets, you know pushed to more you know diverse groups and it's not something that is sort of held by you know this uh, as one you know subsection of you know the world or whatever uh, i have clicked record and it is counting the kilobits so if i run yeah. out of uh you know disk space that's when the podcast ends i feel like i know you pretty well you are there's no way you've got limited disk space I am a professional. <laughs> this seems unbelievably unlikely. <laughs> on Windows, the little thing's going to pop up any second and be like, you're running out of space. Would you Bro. like to delete 20 gigabytes of temporary files? All right. All right. Well, you know, now we're going to be obligated to always do it this way, which is going to add like 25 minutes onto my editing time every time. But Yep. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, we knew we were going to get here eventually. Yep, here we are. Okay. So, uh, where we left off was the, the, you know, artisanal coding versus plumbing question. Right. Um, so you said you were, uh, you've talked to people, you know, at, at boot camps or in college or whatever about the topic. So what's your shtick with them? No, 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 I'll tell you mine. So, yeah. So I basically think that we are plumbers and we aren't treated as plumbers or electricians or carpenters or trades people right now um, because the demand outweighs the supply and more people every day are thinking oh we need software right where I work and every business could use a little bit of software sprinkled over their you know their revenue or whatever and so my my thinking is that as we continue to evolve as an industry and more and more people are getting into coding, which I think is a good thing. And coding is taught at more schools and, you know, colleges and wherever. The more people that learn how to code, I think, and, and the more industries that need software, which will soon probably be every industry, right? Every industry. probably already there. Right, 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 right. You need some degree of software. Mm-hmm. And so the more people that need custom software, I think it's definitely going to go the way of the turn the phone book, you know, okay, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, oh, custom software, you know. Um, And so I think that, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it will, I think our sort of high horse, you know, free lunches every day, uh, you know, everything's amazing, ping pong tables and root beer beers, uh, that's not reality um, coming soon to a job near you. Well, okay. This is going to be, this is, this is going to be fun. I suspect you're wrong about most of it. Uh, <laughs> like I don't mean most things in general, but I mean most of what you just said. No, I mean, I, either way I enjoy this. I have two people <laughs> okay. in my life. who will tell me how wrong I am on a consistent basis. <laughs> just having to be two of the people you talk to the most. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let me go and let me let me say why I think maybe. Well, I'll just get into it. So, okay, point one: um, programming is going the way of plumbing. So I wish I had more data on what I'm going to say, but you didn't have much either. So let's go with our hunches. Um, I do not see that happening yet. 
like if I just look around my world and say like does it seem like there's a there there are many more programmers today than there were five years ago the answer doesn't seem to be yes to me the answer seems to be no to me like I'm not saying there are fewer but I don't think there are many more and and certainly there's a lot more demand so maybe there's more but there's so much the demand has been going up so much I actually feel like as a percentage of work required there are maybe fewer I think so I think there are fewer today as a percentage. Like, this is what it feels like to me. Fewer programmers today per unit of programming work demanded than there was, you know, two years ago or four years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and again, I don't know that for sure, but anecdotally, like I don't see very much evidence of the opposite. Do you, I mean, do you see that? Do you see like a surplus that's well, see, growing? But I think- I think there's so two the market parts of hasn't this, recognized. Mm-hmm. That's but that's that's the thing. I think there's two parts of this. I think that there is the economic realities of where we are now, right? Which is that demand far outweighs supply. And and I, I don't think that in the immediate term that there will be a correction strong enough to make supply outweigh demand. I agree with you there. But but demand so so demand's going to go down, you think? I think that as we go, I think that both supply and demand, I think demand won't necessarily go down, but I think that the demand for the types of software that we're building most days these days will go down. I think that the people solving the really complex problems won't have this problem as much, but I I cannot fathom a world where we are still building social media startups in 15 years from now. Yeah, I agree with you there, but I mean, I, I think that that underestimates, like, I, I think that that world that's building, you know, son of social media startups will have, or, you know, or, or daughter of picture sharing site will have programmers that have those skills as kind of the same relative in the same proportions as the current world does have the skills that are, are needed to build, you know, social media apps. And by the way, it's not like making social media apps at any scale is, is a solved problem by any stretch. Like sure. not a solved problem. Sure. I mean, just think about the, ch- I mean, I don't know directly the challenges that GitHub has, but to some extent, that's what GitHub is to a large extent, I'd say. And it's not like GitHub's, you know, sitting back on the armchair going, Jesus is pretty easy. Solve problem. I don't think. <laughs> no, but <laughs> right. right? And you guys no, have like as much way. money let's as one the, could need. But let's say you have an extra 15 grand in your pocket, right? Let's just say, and I, and you are not a developer, right? Let's just say you're a normal person graduating from college and you go get your first job and make $30,000, right? You're not in any, you know, you're just a communications major or something, not just a, but I'm basically speaking through my wife's experience here, right? She went through, you know, college marketing, the whole nine yards gets just a sort of normal entry level job, right? I hand her $15,000 and go, would you like to go to a boot camp? And she goes, sure. And she goes and learns how to code for like 12 weeks, right? 15 weeks, maybe, maybe. And then she leaves and gets a job for $80,000. Now, what that says to me is that the supply problem isn't teaching people how to code. The problem is there's not enough people learning how to code. And so I think we are starting to correct that by both giving the ability for people that are in underrepresented groups the ability to code and that can mean you know financial that can mean you know uh ethnic groups and, and everything else 
we we allow more people to learn how to code and not just give the same people who have these options to learn how to code and it doesn't make any sense to me in any business right where i go here's fifteen thousand dollars as soon as you graduate assuming you graduate right and you can do this you'll get a job that's going to pay you a huge multiple of that right like I, what I should do is I should just go take my retirement and go pay all these people to do this, you know, this learning. And let's just assume that one out of every four doesn't go through with it. Right. I could make a huge return getting people to learn how to code. Right. And so that's untenable. That's just not something that is going to continue as we go. Eventually someone's going to realize in high school, Oh crap. If we just teach these kids how to code for one semester in their senior year, they'll graduate and make more money than their parents did when they graduated high school without going to college. Right. So that, but what's, that's the, so what's the, so what broken. on this? What's that? What's the, so what? Like, I mean, like, let's say, so that's let's all say true. they do do so, that. So right? what? So let's okay. say they do do that, and and every every high school senior in America graduates with a junior developer certificate. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, right? There is no way our system could absorb those millions of people in one week, you know, in one month, in one year, or whatever. I think that I think that maybe we're drawing some conclusions. Uh, from the stories of the, you know, call it the designer boot camp graduates making 80 grand that I think are slightly baloney, to be honest. So I am a hiring manager. Like I've hired many, many people. You've been involved, I'm sure, in hiring processes of yep. various sorts across various companies. Um, I, like, could I envision hiring a recent boot camp grad? for 80 grand. Sure. Because I think it's totally possible that a really, really talented person happened to find their way to programming that way. Like, of course I could imagine that. Do I think on average or even in the uh, 80% of the curve, maybe 90, 95% of the curve that it, it would even be a thought that crossed my mind to hire someone out of a boot camp for 80 grand. Of course not. It's ridiculous. I would ne- I, like, I've met many of them. They're not, $80,000 programmers. They barely know what they're doing. And like that is not nasty or dismissive because I have met some that are very talented that happen to make their way in there. But those are outliers. Like I think that that's like saying, ah, I don't want to use this example because I think it's a little inflammatory, but like what that's like pointing the, uh, to Barack Obama as president and saying, we don't have a race problem anymore. Well, y- yes, it's true that a black man is president, but that does not mean that that does not say all that much, frankly, about the plight of, you know, most black men, just like the exceptional bootcamp developers that make 80 grand and stick to the job. They don't like, you know, lose it quickly just because they exist does not mean that on average, a bootcamp developer, you can exchange $15,000 once for an annuity of 80 grand. I just don't buy it. Like I'm calling baloney on it. Which I'm perfectly willing to hear I'm wrong on, but it just doesn't meet with my experience so far. Like, I have not seen the flood of talented boot camp graduates that should make 80 grand. I've seen some, but I think that I think they're anomalous. Uh, it match your experience or not? So, I think that. We're not considering the fact that these people are still getting hired. (laughs) 
Like, I don't have any experience interviewing a recent boot camp grad to be able to determine their skill set. I, I have not. So I can't really speak to whether these people coming out of these uh, boot camps are um, highly trained or not. I've seen a lot of boot camps. I've seen, you know, a couple of boot camps pretty intimately, and I, I think they're doing some great work, some of them. But I can't speak to whether these people, you know, are coming out and should or whatever, you know, be hired based on their, their skill set or not. That I can't say. Obviously, you know, there's the uh, people that are coming, you know, above and beyond, like you said. But I think to my point is that there's so many people going through this system right now. And people are getting hired through this system right now. Um, I don't think it is primarily, a, um, you know, a, like payday loan business, you know. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I think that there are some unscrupulous uh, boot camps that are, you know, going the way of the dodo at the moment. But overall, I think that, you know what makes this industry so interesting is the king making and queen making that comes from just being able to develop right like if you could prove i can code something like you get access to this whole new world of you know employment existence well so so here's but so here's what i'm going to pitch back to on that i think that's the deal like and i i think that the world that we're in now that is not going to change anytime soon favors the rich and favors the programmers. And I don't think that that's a temporary phenomenon. I think that that was predicted 120 years ago, you know, by, you know, the the discussion of the technocrats. Right. And, and if, you know, go back and I think I'm not exactly a Marx specialist, but I think Marx would have had this one pretty nailed, right. That, that there is going to be, this world that's ruled by a combination of those that had power in the first place and those that can control the machine and the numbers. I just think we're living that. And, um, I think that maybe you're right that, um, well, I think that there are some odd unsustainable things like, you know, does it make sense that you could, you could trade $15,000 for an annuity that pays a premium of $45,000 over what you were making before? Well, obviously not. Cause if that was the case, you'd have like you know, every hedge fund in the world funding, funding boot camp graduates and taking a share of their future earnings, right? Cause that'd be the best investment of all time. And that's, you know, both not happening, which is a reason to look twice at the claims. I think that's actually as good of reason as any to look twice at the claims is that there would just be a massive market underwriting those degrees if that was the case. Um, but, but also I think you can look at it and say, well, the, the value of being able to code effectively, especially when combined with other skills is so valuable that it's worth it for some companies to take flyers on people that have learned to code a bit on the off chance that one out of X of them ends up learning to code a lot more than a little bit, right? Because if, if, if you find one out of 10 that you hire is amazing and, and yeah, that's right. We're going to go to 10 X after this then. So if you find one out of 10, that's amazing. And the other nine out of 10 are just okay. Well, you know what? You probably, it's probably okay. In other words, I think that hiring is a little bit like venture capital in that you're, you're looking to hit the grand slam in the, the boot camps do give you access to a set of people that have passable skills that may not on average be worth it, but on like the, the value delivered by programmers is so uneven in my opinion that, I think it could make anytime you've got that sort of volatility in the underlying, 
you know, value of the, the resource, so to speak, to call people resources, then it makes tons of sense to start taking options, right? Because there's a possibility that that option pays because of the volatility. So in other words, like I, I think that there are alternate explanations um, aside from that, this is some sort of unsustainable bubble, bubble of, of stupidity that it's that easy that you can spend 15 grand in 15 weeks and all of a sudden be, be employable. Like, I think there are other explanations that say why it may be that people, that, that there are stories of the $80,000 bootcamp graduate and why there aren't more and why there isn't more money pouring in. Like, I, I think it just deserves a little bit, a little bit of examination. Yeah, I, I think my point ultimately, while we're kind of sticking to this, you know, boot camp idea, is that I think the boot camp is a signal right now for where things are headed. Meaning, the reason we potentially have less developers in general is I still think the cost of entry to be a developer is actually quite high for most people. Um, yeah, do you mean it was so cost in, in denominated in what? In cash. Oh, so I don't. I don't believe that at all. So I, I know, I, but I, 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 I know that, and I think that is the interesting thing in this system right now. Right? Count up the dollars, though. So let's say, let's pick. Um, well, let's take Kayla, my uh, my nineteen year old. Ah, okay, but see, here's see. the problem. But here's the problem, though. Right? You, I, you're already a developer. Not, not. I have no care about the fact that you're able to develop. But presumably, right, as a developer or as an engineer or whatever, you make a certain salary. And I think I would posit that that is the highest contributing factor to Kayla's ability to become an engineer if she wants to. So, well, let's, let's change. Okay, so let's rewind. Let's do a time machine game. And <laughs> exactly. That's so my best put, time machine uh, impression. So we'll put you and me as 18-year-olds right now. Um, and I'm going to say we're unremarkable in our means. Let's say we're not, you know, we're not um, dealing with poverty and we don't have, you know, we don't have uh, stacks of Benjamins either. Right. It's somewhere we're just, I don't know. We're fine. Uh, how much money do you think it takes to, uh, learn the skills of programming, um, that are required to get a job that's interesting? And then we'll talk about the other resources that you'd need too, aside from cash, which I think are notable. But on the money side, like what are the line items in our budget? Yeah, but see, I feel like when you when you when you separate it out like this, you're missing a huge part of the system that that would make someone successful or not, right? Like, let's say you were gifted a laptop. What other stuff would you need, right? An internet connection, let's say, right? And if you don't have you need one, time. If, if, right, you need right. Time. But I think time is the thing that is the is the most difficult to deal with. If you are not coming from a privileged background, that is what I, that is, that is, I, tr I, I desperately believe that. Well, I, I mean, I, I, well, I agree with that. And so I, mean, I think, I think that to be, to be honest about it, I think that, uh, the, where we draw the privilege line is going to in a large part be a function of age here. So if you are 18 with no dependents, either direct or call it inherited because you know, you've inherited the dependence of your parents that may not be around or, you know, mm -hmm. other family members, but let's just say you're 18, no direct dependents and limited indirect dependents. You're like, like how much money you need to have to pass your privilege test is pretty low. Uh, now I, that's, I'm not saying that everyone's above that. So of course there are 
large groups of people in the U.S. and, you know, in other countries, either higher or lower proportions that are that are below that privilege line. But um, there are lots that are above. And uh, I think that it's a little taboo to, you know, like, I, I know that there's a lot of stress around sort of noting one's privilege, which I think you and I do um, fine. You know, I think we're well aware. But I don't think that... I, I, I don't think that most, or, or even, I think a very large percentage of 18 year olds would pass the privilege line, honestly, because like, I mean, now fast forward to 25, 28, 32. Okay. Now the number plummets, right? What percentage of 32 year olds are privileged enough to take the time to learn how to program? Now you're in vanishingly small, right? Cause the percentage that are married and have kids and, or have parents that need care or have siblings that need care just skyrockets. But at 18 or 16 or 17, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. There's probably in the U.S. maybe 15 to 20 15 percent maybe that are at that line uh, below the privilege line where they just wouldn't have the time to learn how to program. But I think you know that that would leave 80, 85 that are probably above. You think that sounds off? It sounds and very I'm not dismissing in the, the abstract. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not I dismissing the plight of the 15 to 20 either. I mean, obviously that's a huge deal and I absolutely do, am not dismissing that, but yeah, I think yeah. that like, let's talk about whoever's above that line. And if it's 80%, then on a different day, we can talk about the 20, but because the 20% exists does not mean or 15 or 10 or whatever the percentage is, does not mean we can't talk about the 80% that have the time right Yeah, now. yeah sure. Cause, sure. Cause most of them that have the time are not learning how to program and it's, I don't buy it's because they don't have the money because when we list out what you need, the list is going to be laptop Bueller, right? That's the list. You know, you don't, you don't need other things besides a laptop and internet connection. Maybe, you know, a small budget for books and other learning materials, maybe, you know, call it $300 a year or some, something like that. Um, you know, so, so the idea that that's what's holding people back from learning how to program I don't buy because if you look at, uh, uh, you, the amount of money you need to have a cell phone dwarfs that number yet. Everyone seems to have a cell phone, you know, even though that does, you know, pr- provides much less return to the, the holder of the cell phone than, I mean, granted cell phones provide a lot of return, but relative to a, uh, programming competence, it provides less return yet. You know, everyone's got a cell phone and no one knows how to program. There's something to it. I think. I think you also have to be able to learn how to do it. And I think that, uh, mm. you know, I think saying, you know, here's a laptop, learn how to code. I mean, I feel like that'd be giving a, you know, med student a scalpel and say, learn how to learn how to do this. There's some books, you know, I feel like there's a lot of professions where we wouldn't, we wouldn't be okay with saying, you know, figure out how to do this. And I know there's, I know coding is an interesting, an interesting, uh, area because we sort of fetishize the ability for you to, you know, I figured it out on myself by myself, you know, I mean, for a while, that's kind of, I feel like that's what got me my first job was I, I taught myself, you know, I was lucky, I guess. I don't know. And I, I got my first job, you know, based on that sort of awesome story of, you know, what are you going to school for? Well, not coding, uh, you know, and I went and did that, but I, I do think that there's so many moving parts that I wish I could speak more eloquently about here. And I, I, I think that, you know, 
it seems so untenable to, to think that we won't go the way of car manufacturing or any other business ever that thought that they were untouchable because they were so intrinsically valuable to the lives of, you know, did anyone think that I'm going to call bullshit on this one too. I don't believe that was thought. Like, I think if we could get in a time machine and go back to 19, you know, what was the peak of sort of car wonder, like 1952 or something. Sure. I do not believe that that was a thought. I don't believe that people bestowed on, the workers of the um, manufacturing line at Ford Motor Company magical powers and believe that they are untouchable. I think that maybe they thought the union was untouchable. I think I'd buy that, but I don't. I don't believe that society that the, the culture sort of saw them as wizards in, uh, or any other facsimile thereof. I just don't think that was a thing. I mean, do you think it was? Uh, neither of us were theirs then, so I'm just guessing. But I've heard this argument before, and it doesn't. It doesn't sound right to me. I mean, tell that to all the people that, you know, I don't know. I guess, like, I, I mean, I, I guess the union was, was what makes this an interesting argument in a way, you know, because the union is something that was special and unique in some way to, the, to their, you know, manufacturing, uh, you know, career. The idea that this union was going to protect you because they can't, they can't fire just you. They have to fire everyone, basically. Right. But they did. <laughs> and they're going to continue to. <laughs> and it's only going to get worse, right? If you're in manufacturing, it's not looking good yeah, for you if you can't code. Because if you can't do yeah. CAD right now, then you're basically, you know, going to get outsourced, at least in the United but, States. Uh, sure, but I mean, look, there are huge. I, I just think that this analogy is is at best weak and at worst just totally off. And, and the reason is that if you were good at working, and it gets like it gets dodgy almost immediately. So if you were good at working on the line at Ford, whatever that means, because it wasn't even a thing, right? I mean that that idea didn't wasn't even like a concept that people thought about, I don't think. But if you were good at it, you could not take that skill and use it to catapult you to the top of Ford where you actually own the thing. That's the difference. Whereas if you can program, you you can because you have the resource aside from money that's needed or money and I'm going to st- money and attention. I'd say there are three big resources, money, attention, and program, you know, engineering. And the, the car world the you know, called the manufacturing world did not have this idea. Like the, the skills were not intrinsically valuable enough that they could be converted that the people that held them could also be the people that would have the money to run everything like, um, Mark Zuckerberg. There was not a Mark Zuckerberg equivalent in the auto industry because it, there never could have been. Whereas there are many Mark Zuckerberg equivalents, at least in, in this conversations context, um, in, in software in now in all industry, because that's how powerful the tech, you know, um, the technocrat classes. And I think that it's somewhat like unattractive to talk about because it, it sort of is a little classist and it, and it, and it, and it separates the, you know, those that code from those that code into two groups, you know, those that can have power, even if they didn't have money in the first place and those that never will have power because they didn't have money in the first place and can't code. But what if that's the world? Like what if, you know, on analysis, that's actually how the power seems to be shaking out. And we just don't like to talk about it because that seems possible to me. I mean, I think it is how it is now, at least. 
So what's going to change? I mean, do we think that the the ability to program is going to, you know, or to engineer is going to become ubiquitous? Because like that just seems to be contrary to what I see. Like I don't because I think you pointed out actually the the thing that I noticed most, which is that if I was to go down the list of resources, one needs to become a great you know programmer or you know communicator to machines. They need time. Not everyone has time. I agree, but many people have time, especially when they're young. And you need some money. Not everyone has money, but most people have the money you'd need. So like most people are not disqualified by the time or money requirements of becoming a programmer in their youth, call it up until their low, low to mid twenties. Um, then the third thing, which is the least attractive to talk about is you need ability and the ability hurdles, not nothing, especially if, you know, especially if you want to be, um, at the skill level that could sort of rocket you into a very interesting position. And of course, you know, you don't necessarily need that if you had, um, other skills besides programming or money or, or, uh, an audience, you know, you could combine that, that cocktail of resources in interesting ways, but, um, ability is a big third. And, uh, you know, I don't know how we talk about that as a requirement and as an ingredient, um, in a comfortable way. Like I, I have not seen that as a community, we can talk about that without getting uncomfortable almost immediately. One, cause it's sort of talking about, you know, programmers talking about how you have to be smart to be a programmer is sort of like on its face annoying. Um, but it's also a little true or maybe more than a little true. So like, you know, what do we make of that? And if, if that's the case that, you know, aptitude is such a big thing, um, then, then what? You know, then does that change our, our sort of uh, drum beating about everyone becomes a programmer? And if we decide that, you know, the ruling class will either be those with money or attention or the aptitude to become a programmer and everyone else sort of suffers the fate of capitalism, then, you know, then what? That's why I think I think the, the topic's interesting because it, it sort of dead ends in this very cold place to me. <laughs> Right, like, because it just you're like, oh man, that's if that's like if that's it, it sucks. Which is why I think people romanticize the idea that programming is going the way of the guild, because I think it humanizes the programmer, and it doesn't sort of create this class war under undertone. Is that we've never had this conversation before? But does that sound off or on to you? I mean, I think that the the reality is that there is this class war, and it's already here. And I think that the problem is that, you know, uh, I, you know, we're this, you know, past two decades or whatever, where, you know, engineers, uh, developers have gotten so much money so quickly, um, I think has made us believe that truly all it takes is, you know, that time and maybe even that aptitude, but, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me and and others that, you know, are, are doing really good work or important work that aren't, you know, the CEO of Facebook or, you know, whatever the next, you know, big uh, multi-billion dollar businesses or, or whatever. Um, but not many of them are hurting, to be fair. No, there are no. many people that, that, that are, you know, call it as smart as you that are like, oh, shit, where am I going to get my, you know, my next lunch? They just aren't. No, there are certainly that have become programmers. I think that there are plenty of people as smart as you that have that have not applied those skills to 
technology that absolutely are wondering where. Um, and I think that your point before, there are certainly plenty of people that are as smart as you, that aren't as privileged as you, that never got to apply those skills to make money, even if they tried, because either life or industry or other people shut the door in their face. Like I acknowledge all that. And all that being said, there are, you know, if, if you take a guy as smart as you and decide to put him in technology, most of them are going to do pretty darn well. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's transition to the 10 X topic, which, which I think is, is like right on the cusp of, of all of this. So what's your take on 10 X? Uh, it, it, you know, I, it, complete baloney, uh, uh, true but overblown, or uh, accurate and disa- distasteful to talk about for some reason, or you know, some other some other poll in that in that space. Um, you know, um, I'm sort of sitting here <laughs> trying to gather my thoughts. Oh, you know, I, I think that my problem with the whole 10x thing is that uh, if it's true, right, on its face, that there are developers that are 10 times better than some developers, um, then I can't handle the fact that those people aren't paid 10 times more than me. Um, well, I mean, maybe they... They aren't. Well, they I aren't. think that, I mean, yeah, but I think <laughs> that a lot they're of the... Right? Uh, well, it's, it's one zero. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, it's not, it's a lot, a lot of money with one zero. I don't know. I mean, my my point. I think my the point I'm trying to make is that right. Like, I do think that there are people that I have worked with that are easily, you know, outputting ten times more than me. Right. Um, I don't know that I am, uh, you know, a one time developer or whatever. You know, I don't know that it's as simple as that. I think there are people that are really good. Um, you know, I. I think the un, uh, sexy reality is that I, you know, have made choices in my life to prioritize other things than just freaking work. Um, and you know, I guess, you know, there is some argument with the 10 time developer thing that it has nothing to do with that. And it's like, if I, sh- if two developers show up for eight hours, who's going to get more work done, right? Um, who's going to get more value delivered or whatever other bullshit comes out of the 10 time developer, uh, conversation, uh, that comes up. Yeah, but even if that was true though, if one person's willing to work more time or take bigger risks, then, I mean, it's not like the other person's constrained to eight hours. So like, I think that like, like in, in other words, the, the idea that uh, like there are some number of 10x people in the world, and if one of them is willing to work 12 hours a day versus another that's seven, well, the 12 hours is going to produce you know 50 percent more or more than that than the seven guy, right? Like, like I, I, th- I think it's a little weird when people uh, bring up the idea that uh, like like the person you're competing against is not constrained, like that they like they they, c- they can do things that maybe you won't do and they're you know but but you're like competition's unfair like i think ben thompson says this all the time and i totally agree like it's unfair and if you're not willing to compete in a way that someone else is well then you lose you know that's sort of i I agree with you like that's like we have to make our choices and those choices will result in us losing sometimes and oh well what are you gonna do i think the thing about the 10x for me is uh that is interesting to talk about is, you know, I think most people 
kind of scoff at the idea of the 10x programmer in the community now. It's like almost as common as as being annoyed at their recruiter emails. But I feel like every time I've asked someone if they've met a 10x developer, they basically 100% of the time say, like, are like, of course I have. Like, they can immediately think of the people that they've met that are like that. And I, I one the, the juxtaposition, the contrast between those two positions, like 10x is ridiculous, and you know, oh, that's just because they piled up the technical debt at 10x. They're a you know, yada yada yada. You've heard you've heard the arguments before. Like combined with then, if you ask them, well, have you met any? And they say, oh, of course I have. And then they you know refer to the people. I have trouble reconciling those two th- those two uh, common experiences when I discuss the topic with other developers. Um. Because I mean, you can, you can. I, I should have asked you, but you can you can think of guys or gals that were 10x developers, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've never met anyone that said no to that. I just don't understand what why have the distinction. Um, I mean, obviously, the I mean, the on the on the face of it is, well, if I'm going to hire 100 people at the same salary or whatever, or at a slightly higher salary, I'd rather hire 10x developers because then I'm going to get 100 times more things done, right, or whatever. Like, I, I get the, like, on-paper reason. Yeah, but guess what? You know, they don't... The 10x developer doesn't need you. You know, person hiring the 10x developer. Right. Like, and I think that that... I think that where this... All of these topics are interesting is... Is there about... Power? And they're about... In the, in the struggle for power and they're about class and the struggle between classes. And those topics are very uncomfortable to talk about, uh, you know, for, I think for pretty good reason, because, you know, Hey, if we're uncomfortable talking about how the, the sort of, um, the technocrats are in a very privileged class that gets to dominate everyone, but the capitalists, basically, if we, if we don't even like to talk about that topic, then of course we're not going to like to talk about the tip of the technocrats who are the 10 Xers who are like, you know, ultra concentrated in their ability and are the ones that have the, the capability of leapfrogging over the capitalists to become the capitalist technocrats like the Mark Zuckerbergs. And you know, that, that whole conversation is uncomfortable, you know, because it sort of acknowledges that, that, um, that the sort of scary capabilities, if you combine, money and access and intelligence, right? And like boil it down that you'll concentrate the power so significantly that like the world gets a little topsy turvy. And I think that's scary to talk. I think it's both scary to talk about and think about. And I think it's also obviously the case. Like if you just look around how the world's gone the last 20 years, it's obviously what's happening, right? That's, that's how you get Sergey Brin's and Mark Zuckerberg's and, and, uh, Mr. Tesla and, uh, Elon Musk and, you know, the rest of them. Because, you know, we're, we're in an age where the combination of capital plus technical skill is just, it's like a nuclear bomb. You know, and, and back to the conversation, I think it all, like, you can draw a line directly from there all the way back to how we feel about boot camps. You know, like, like our, our uh, community is affected strongly by fear and discomfort related to our role in this class struggle. And, you know, I get it. I get it, but I think it makes for the conversations a little bit less interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, 
I, yeah, I think I'm just uh, on the other side of the coin on most of this, just just because I I hear like I, I I think we can summarize it as you know you you're saying you know well if you have X Y and Z like why why aren't you a developer or rather like why if you want to be a developer why aren't you you know or whatever uh, and and you look at that as a way of people like you know sort of like blacklisting themselves from the ability to become a developer and i guess i think of it more as you know as time goes on we will be whitelisting more people into this system you know um and not have to go through college let's say or have to have a a high innate ability you know to just be able to learn on your own um and i think the trades piece and why I think it's just it's it's not while we're not there yet why it's something that we are possibly heading to in some period of time and that's probably longer than my career you know potentially um, but but you know it's I, mean, I think I agree on the bottom end of the market just for what it's worth like I think that that um, I'm not going to pick out any particular skill because that's not my point here but pick whatever we decide is the bottom end of the programming market absolutely gets commoditized by things like Squarespace. I mean, right. Like we've seen that happen over the last 15 years with think about the work that like you were doing on websites back 15 years ago, like, you know, getting paid $5,000 to make something you could spend $10 and get something a hundred times better with WordPress right now. Right. Like that's, that's already like, we'll have that same thing happen again. Um, with the stuff that we make now, but then there will be the new set of things to like, I think we've already lived this movie. Like we see how it goes. It's just that the state of the art in terms of self-service goes up. And that does not mean that the uh, demand for custom software goes away. It just shifts higher into the curve. And if anything, I think exacerbates the whole problem. It puts, you know, a higher premium on, on, intelligence and experience. Well, maybe, maybe that get back to the beginning of the conversation. Maybe that's part of what's driving, you know, this is a a non cynical take on this part of what's driving the desire to have more senior developers, so to speak, is that the easier problems are solved and, and what's whatever, you know, quotes solved and what remains are harder problems now. And like the harder problems you need more talent for talent or experience and that's in not super uh ample supply because everyone's got the harder problems to deal with i mean it's possible that that's that's the upstream thing driving the demand i guess yeah i mean i still get paid so that's kind of (laughs) nice yeah yeah, I don't know. I see the boot camps as the beginning of this change that will take a long time. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, at least until I retire, I hope nothing major changes. <laughs> but. <laughs> do you really, like, okay, so let's do, I've got to do this ad and then let's finish up with that. So, third sponsor today is CodeShip. CodeShip's a hosted continuous delivery service that does not want to get left off of this week's episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. They focus on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects, and you can get started with their free plan today. 
So they've got a brand new feature. I have not used this feature yet, but I'm excited to, and it's called Organizations. You can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. They didn't say this in the ad, but from what I've read, it's kind of similar to how organizations are imagined and implemented in GitHub. Um, And I suspect that's why they're called organizations in CodeShip also. Anyhow, you can maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with their new organization's plan. If you go to CodeShip.com slash 5x5Ruby, you'll save 20% off any premium plan for the next three months by using the code 5 by 5 Ruby, and I mentioned earlier that someone was going to partner with me to help uh, get the word out and make uh, API First Training a great event, and that's CodeShip, amongst I think some others too. So um, look to some uh, some fun things uh, uh, from the two of us about that later this month. Thanks to CodeShip. All right, well, let's end with this 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 topic of sort of fear of the change. So do you think about it that way? Like, do you, do you think, geez, you know, this is a pretty good gig right now and I hope it just stays this way. Um, I think about it. I think that, uh, I mean, I believe my side of the argument. And so (laughs) I do think that, you know, um, I think that there will be, uh, labor correction, uh, if, you know, 30 years from now, um, there are another 25 million developers in the world, um, Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, um, I mean, they're certainly not fewer being, uh, created. And so, um, if demand at any point, uh, say there's a technological advancement, uh, in the next 30 years, um, in which, you know, who knows, you know, like, to Elon Musk's giant fear that, you know, maybe AI does get smart enough to solve some of these problems for us, let's just say. Right. Um, then they don't need me to do this, this, the thing I'm doing today, right? Maybe maybe we'll continue to evolve and learn the new skills that are necessary to, to build those new things, you know, um, the, the new languages, the new architectures, the new cloud, whatever. Um, so it's not a fear of, like, I need to protect my position or something like that, or I need to make sure that I'm always ready to go on to the next thing. Um, it's more, uh, I, I, it, it feels inevitable to me that the privilege that people in our tech space right now are, are, get to have, um, which is, you know, roughly you reach a certain level and you're kind of always employable, you get great perks, great salaries, great whatever. Um, it, it seems inevitable that that won't last, you know, forever. And forever being, I don't know, you know, two careers from now, you know, two, you know, lifelong workings from now, whatever we want to call it. Um, and I, I think that's like a good thing. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I totally acknowledge that it's like awesome right now. And I benefit entirely from this, (laughs) the way that the system is set up, you know? Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily, good or that you know it won't change in the nearish future you know um 
Like, I could see a scenario where my son, you know, is 30 and, you know, it's not like this now where it's just a million, you know, everyone's searching for a developer to to work on their project. Um, Sure. That just seems impossible to me. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, I think Bill Gates has this quote that people have, you know, mentioned a million times, which I'm going to make it a million and one, which is that we overestimate what will happen in one year and underestimate what will happen in five. And like, I think that that's true for my opinion of what you just said. I actually think that the changes in the programming labor market will be huge in five years. Like, so my position isn't that it's that, that it's like protected and not changing. Um, I think that the, the idea that like it, it goes the way of the, of, um, you know, assembly line workers in the auto industry. I don't, I don't really buy cause I don't think there's anything protecting programmers like that's artificial, like, like the union was before, nor some sort of artificial cap on the resources needed to become a programmer. Um, you know, which would be some sort of sub for the union protection. You know, I think that the, the, the question for me is more like, well, what do you do with your privileged position right now? So like, you know, you or me or many people listening to this show. So you're in a spot where you get to take, you know, where you are in the world times what you're capable of doing. And it can generate both interesting opportunities and money and connections. And if you stood still and did nothing, then in five years, you probably wouldn't be able to convert it into all the things you can convert it into now. But like, you don't need to stand still. You can do things with that privilege that mean you'll still be privileged and, you know, or even more privileged, you know, or in a more powerful position in five years. And I think that's more interesting to look at than like, it's more interesting to look ahead and say like, how can I jump off this ledge that I got to because of all these fortunate, um, opportunities than like to look in back and say like, Oh, what's coming up in back of me? Um, which I don't think is what you were saying, but I think is, is, uh, it feels like a, an undertone of, of conversations related to like when things change and I'm no longer so lucky. Like I I just, I, uh, I look at it the other side a little bit. Like I am so lucky, therefore I can stay ahead. You know, it seems like, uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll just call out cause you made this point like four times already. Oh my God. That feels so dirty to me. (laughs) Why? Uh, Which part? The, the, like, I am so lucky. And so I'm able to stay ahead, you know? Like why? I mean, I mean dirty is in like it sucks that the world's that way, or dirty is in not true. Oh, dirty because dirty as in it sucks that the world's that way. Like, oh yeah, I to- I totally. Agree I mean, with that. I mean, like I you know, you got to do what you got to do to to provide for you and your family and whatever. But like at the same time, you know, to 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 sort of end the conversation in that, I think is perfect. You know, because I agree with you, and we can agree together and like ride off into the sunset on the back of our you know unicorn or something. But like. <laughs> But like you know, the, that word's been that, that word's been stolen from us. I you know, know. <laughs> I know. Damn it all. <laughs> but like you know, it, it, I I guess my my thought on it is that you know, if I'm looking if I'm looking towards the future, I I, I would almost hope that you know software development up to some level, right, is as you know blasé as you know I don't know writing a letter or like whatever, whatever, whatever the thing, whatever the thing is. Like, I think that would be a good thing for like humanity. 
I, well, I completely agree with that. And I think this is the good topic to sort of wrap on because I think that, that there's a, like what I think would be good for the world does not like if I let that shape my call it, um, analysis, you know, my, my conclusions as an analyst of things, well, I'm going to come up to just all sorts, like, then I'll decide that capitalism is going to go away tomorrow, frankly. Right. Cause like mm-hmm. capitalism's cl- pretty clearly bad for the world. Um, but, uh, which is of, co- of course a bigger, bigger topic, but like easy to make the case, at least it's bad for the world. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going away tomorrow. Like just but, cause I think it's bad for the world. And so, and so, and so with that, and I'm so bad at these arguments. And so I, I really hope someone on Twitter can like help me out because <laughs> I just, I don't feel like I have the necessary bullet points here, but like with the capitalism argument, it's probably not going away because the people in power have the ability to keep that from happening. Right? Like if you have the money, right. you're in charge of the system, whatever. The interesting thing with programming is that, right. The more people that have access to learn and do it, right, there's no real systemic way right now to keep them from being able to do that, presuming they have the resources that you mentioned, right? Computer, yeah. internet, time, um, you know, innate ability connection, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, as long as you have those things, you can become a programmer. And I, I think, I think we kind of glossed over the whole like time thing and like, you know, what some people have to deal with that we didn't have to deal with or whatever, but like, we're, I don't know. think we did. I think we said really clearly that there's a, a not insignificant percentage of people. Yeah. For yeah. Whom yeah. I mean, we, we the spoke time a, and the money's a big deal. Yeah. We spoke a lot. Yeah. We, we said that that's a thing. Um, but we didn't dive into that. And so saying that's a thing, which we both agreed on, uh, you know, I think that if we're able to correct that or if society corrects that like on its own, right? Like how, you know, the natural progression or government, you know, intervention or whatever, then I think that, you know, it's easier to get someone to learn how to code than it would be to like, say, overthrow capitalism, right? And so I'm curious. The two are deeply related, by the way. Oh, like, no, it, totally. Good yeah. luck in, good luck separating these two points. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like, you know, like I said, you know, you need the money, you need the time, you need, you need all these things that, you know, capitalism provides you. Um, but with all the work that's happening right now and all of the, you know, efforts to help try to slowly chip away at those smaller things from both the nonprofit and, you know, the government sector when it pleases them um i can't help but feel like optimistic that that will change well i mean i think we do have a slight preview of what that could be if you look at google and amazon in that but google and amazon have something or they have multiple things in common even though they're very different um companies and the things are that they're controlled by technocrats Right, these are technical people that parlayed their genius and access, and maybe a little bit of luck uh, and a little bit of money. They parlayed those things into positions of almost unimaginable power. And if you look at how the companies are run, they're not run like companies usually are. And what I mean by that is that that the assumption is that Google is trying to optimize its. Uh, you know, profits over, over time. And that Amazon is optimizing its profits over time. And I don't mean it's opt, you know, it's profits today, but it's profits over the long run. It's future cash flows because that's what we're taught. Business is all about. 
But what if a non-business person ends up controlling the biggest company in the world or two of the you know biggest companies in the world and their objectives aren't quite capitalist object like they're weird they're, they're sort of a weird hodgepodge of goals you know whether it's i mean you could sort of look at google as like a science fair project factory on steroids that uses the business to fund the science fair not the science fair to fund the business and amazon it's like some utopian vision for Oh, a perfectly realized capitalism where the goal isn't exactly to make money, but more to prove that you could make money, which is weird, but okay. Um, I think that what you see is that when the nerds get powerful, they don't do the, to your point, like the world does change and the objectives aren't quite what they were before, but they're not exactly altruistic either. They're just different. Like they're, they're kind of weird and nerdy and, I think that it does provide some hope and that you say, well, it shows that there's a world where the objective could be something other than maximizing profits. That's the hopeful side of this. And then the more pessimistic side is that, but it really just shows that the, you know, that world is the sort of whim of these, you know, ultra rich, ultra powerful 10 people. And like, really, do we want to, do we want to depend on the sort of benevolent dictators to, to help us? you know, get from here to a better place. I don't know. But anyways, I think to, to wrap that up, I think that, that, um, I think it's interesting that if we look, I bet in 25 years, when we look back, we'll be able to see that, uh, we already in 2015, we're living in a world that would show us the future of the sort of weird hybrid technocrat capitalist nerd money, world where the objectives are a little a little wonky compared to what they used to be so this is either the episode that we jump the shark or (laughs) or you know everyone looks back and says this is when the series finally made sense like i I get it now (laughs) which which one what do you think i'm k daigle on twitter let me know (laughs) all right i'm uh i'm barely known on twitter uh, next week we'll talk about rails engines. <laughs>